The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Well, one of the struggles that I often saw growing up in a, a church tradition that is largely Arminian. In other words, they believe that we choose Christ and that is how we are saved. I heard this statement come from a lot of young people as I grew up. What if I didn't do it right? What if I didn't get saved right? But, but how, how, how am I going to know for sure that I really am saved? And one of the sad consequences of that line of thinking is the, the, what follows after, which is a great struggle with assurance, a great struggle of knowing whether or not they are going to be saved once and forever all through their days. And if you were listening to the songs we were singing and you were, were singing them thinking about the words we are singing over and over in those songs, the idea that we are saved once and forever, that we cannot be lost, was woven through all of those songs. And as we, we're looking at our statement of faith and what we believe uh, as Baptists, but as more important than that, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who believe in the authority and the veracity of Scripture, we want to look at this great topic of the perseverance of the saints. I announced this morning as eternal security. Eternal security is more of a common name used by uh, modern theologians. Perseverance of the saints is kind of the older, a uh, little more stodgier, but in actual fact is probably a more accurate name to use, the perseverance of the saints. And that doesn't mean that the saints, it's up to the saints to persevere all the way to the end. It means that the saints will persevere, and that's God's work. So I don't think I'm going to tell you anything new. If you've been in this church for any length of time, you've probably heard this before, but I think it's worth it, worth the time to go back and emphasize and, and pick up some things. I don't think we're going to get through all of it tonight, and what I want to do is break into two parts. We'll look at very much the positive side, and then what I'm thinking is next Sunday evening we'll go and look at the other side and how some of the other arguments against eternal security, where they come from, and really we'll see how faulty they are and they don't stand on Scripture really at all. But it's a good way if someone comes up to you and says it. And in fact, uh, when we were at Casey Bible Church, there was a, three families came. And when you're planting a church and you watch three families all walk in together and they got little kids and, and there's grandpa and kids and grandchildren, your heart just leaps. You think, oh, great. That's like 25 people just walked into our church. And then he told me in no uncertain terminology that he did not believe in eternal security. He believed you could lose your salvation. And he had been already in two churches. And one of those churches actually shut down over the controversy he, he caused over that issue. And so I, as politely as I could, I encouraged him to keep looking for a new home church. I didn't think he would really fit in too well with us. And frankly, I didn't want him to stumble other younger believers in our church. Having said all of that, 
I want you to take your Bibles. I want to look at John chapter 10. As I was studying through the topic and looking at what the London Baptist Confession of Faith said, I was just kept thinking through. I want a passage, one passage I can kind of anchor everything in. And in this passage, Jesus' discussion of the good shepherd and the good shepherd laying down his life and saving his sheep, there's a lot of statements. And there's one, probably the most bold and direct statement to do with uh, the perseverance of the saints or eternal security, if you like that term, right here in this passage. So let's read together. We're going to read from chapter 1 all the way down to chapter to verse number, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to verse number 30. The Word of God says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. A great passage of Scripture. Take your Bibles and just put your finger in John 10 and flip over to Romans chapter 8. This great passage of Paul's, as he describes our salvation, he uses some great terms. And here again, we see something of eternal security in the ending of this passage. But Romans 8, and we're going to read from verse number 20, 28, all the way down to the end of the chapter, which is verse number 39. Verse number 28, and Paul writes and he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall sorry, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can stick your finger in Romans 8 if you want to and go back to John chapter 10. What I want to do is I want to use John 10 as kind of an illustration or a parable to help us see some of the things that are Romans 8 and how they work together. And what we want to know and we want to state as clearly as we possibly can, like we were just singing, salvation is of the Lord. He saved us. He predestined us. He foreknew us. He sent his son to die for us. He called us. He justified us. He sanctified and is sanctifying us. He will save us at the end. Our salvation is completely in the hands of the living God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just work my way through, and I'm not going to go in verse order, but I want to pick out a number of things. Uh, Five about what the shepherd does, and then six about what we do in response. I think what you're going to see as we go through them is the action, the work of the shepherd to save the sheep is a very active thing, and the work of the sheep in being saved is a lot more of a passive thing, and there's a reason behind all this, but we'll get there. So first of all, I want you to notice in verse number 14, John, as he writes and and speaks, or Jesus is speaking, and John is writing it, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So that part that is the shepherds, he knows his sheep. 
Now that reminds us of the fact that Jesus, or God, if you like, foreknew and predestined us. He knew who we were before the ages began. Before all of creation, he looked all the way down through time and he saw every one of us and he knew us. And the idea isn't just that he knew what we were going to do as a passive observer. He had an intimate knowledge of everything about you and about me. He knew the numbers of the hairs on your head. He knew all of the genetic makeup that would be you. He knew when you would come to Christ. He knew all the things you're going to go through. That was an intimate foreknowledge. And John, or sorry, Jesus says in John 10, 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. He had a deep knowledge of us. Notice also in verse 15, he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. How are we justified? How is it that we were saved? It's because there was a shepherd that willingly, voluntarily, for the glory of his Father and the good of his people, he laid down his own life. Paul says that we who, uh, having foreknown, sorry, wrong page, he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and so on. He also called, he also justified. What's the basis of our justification? It's that Christ has died, right? So that's the work of the shepherd to save the sheep. Notice also, up in verse number three, uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, to him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. Notice he calls his own sheep. And I missed that. I, I got the part about he calls them, but I actually missed the two words that followed, his own sheep. He didn't just go in there and call every sheep. He knew that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine, the big curly one over there, that one's mine. And he called his own sheep. And it suggests and reinforces to us that Christ has purchased us with his own blood. We belong to Christ. And he called us. And that call, as the gospel was preached, was a powerful, effectual call. We looked at that a number of months ago in this same study. God called us with a powerful calling that summoned us, made us alive, and gave us the strength and the faith to stand up and respond to that call. So he knew us. He laid down his life for us. He called his own sheep. But you know it doesn't end there. In verse number four, look what it says. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. He both brings us out and he goes before us. Now, I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different understandings of John 10 and whether it's real or parable. I think it's parable, what he's talking about. And the, from one to six is one analogy. And you see how he says they didn't understand him. So he then starts again and the analogy kind of changes. So when it talks about in the first part about him bringing them out and going before them, the idea is he walks into this big enclosure and there's all these sheep there and some belong to him and some don't. And he knows which one are his own. He calls them all by name. They all follow him. He brings them out of that sheepfold and he leads them to take them to a place of the great refreshing grass, the best place to eat, the best place to graze, the freshest water to drink. And I thought, you know what that reminds me of? 
It's the sanctifying work of Christ in each of us to bring us out of the world system and to lead us and take us to the place where, where we're going to grow the best. Um, grow the best. That's good English. Grow well. Uh, there was a great book by a guy named Philip Keller who was a shepherd. I think I might have told you this story. He leads the sheep and he takes them on. He knows where the best grass is. It's at the very top of this high mountain plateau. In order to get there, he takes this long, winding, steep road. It's really sheer on one side and super steep on the other. And as long as he keeps the sheep close by him and keeps talking to them and leading them along, he leads them up this narrow path. And so long as they stay close to the shepherd, they'll all make it to the very top. And sure enough, some drift away and fall off and they're lost. But those who stay close, those who are with him, he takes them all the time. Now, that's his story. Obviously, there's you know, the analogy don't walk all the way around because we don't get lost. We do make it all the way to the top and we stay close by the shepherd. But in the analogy here, Jesus leads his sheep out and he goes before them. And we as sheep are following the shepherd. Notice and also the last part about the shepherd. We'll move on to the sheep next. In verses 28 and 29, the great statement. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a statement to take to the bank, isn't it? He gives us eternal life. And a lot of people said, well, you know, when he says eternal life, he's just talking about the quality of life. Well, yeah, that's true. He is talking about the quality of life. I mean, this life as a Christian, I don't know. I think being Christian is the coolest thing in the world. I don't know why unbelievers don't want to be a part of it. You know, when you're part of this and you see what God has done and you see how God opened your eyes to spiritual realities, and it's such a wonderful life to live. It's a hard life. I didn't say it's not a hard life. It is a hard life, but it's a wonderful life. It is an eternal life. There is an absolute quality to this life, but it's also eternal in the sense of long. It's an unending life. It's an unending relationship with the living God. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Notice it's the same word he talks about in uh, both Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, and John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I tell you the truth. Luke 13, I guess it's, I think it's verses 3 and 5. I tell you the truth, unless you all likewise par- likewise repent. Try again. This is how bad memory gets at 50, okay? So don't laugh. I tell you the truth, that unless you all repent, you will likewise perish. Okay, so there's two sides of the same coin. Perish is mentioned in both cases. And what he talks about here is perish. What's he talking about? To perish means to fail to fulfill the design function for which you were designed. I'd like to use a watch or a pair of glasses or a pen. I have a really nice fountain pen that someone gave me. And if that fountain pen you loses the nib or the bit inside doesn't work anymore and you put on the pen and the paper and it just doesn't work, it's perishing. It's not doing what it was designed to do. And so you may as well throw it away because it doesn't, doesn't work anymore. And you and I as believers in Christ, you and I as God's creation, as humans, were designed and created to glorify God in everything that we do, not just for time, but for all of eternity. And Jesus says, listen, I give my sheep 
eternal life, unending life in my presence. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If I take that end of that pen and bury it in my big meaty fist and hang on to it like this, that little nib in there doesn't have to hang on to my fist for dear life if I'm afraid of falling out. My fist has got it. I mean, that little pen, just the thing just sits there. And I've got, it can't get out. Meaning what? Meaning he, it can't pry itself loose from my grasp. And the analogy is the same, that we who are in the Father's hands cannot pry ourselves out of there. None can get up to the Father. I used to play this game with my boys when we were in church and, and they were having trouble concentrating. I'd, I don't, they'd hold my hand and they'd pry one finger open, you know, and then they'd pry the next one open. And then they get all the way down and I'd snap the first one shut and then they get frustrated because they keep going back and forth to make my fingers. They want to get all my fingers open. And by keeping, you know, keep moving them, you keep them busy for 20 minutes while the preacher drones on. Right. So but that's what it's like. Nobody can walk up to God the Father and start prying his fingers open to reach in and get us out. And the salvation that God gives us is his work. And none of us can set ourselves free from it. But I want you also to notice the work or the response of the sheep to the shepherd. Notice back in verse number 3 of John chapter 10, he says, The sheep hear his voice. There is a call to follow. And when God calls us to follow, he makes us alive. And we hear that call to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the heart is open. The mind begins to work. We hear the gospel. And I think every one of us as believers can remember that moment when you heard the gospel. And you might have heard it 20, 30, 100 times before. And it might have been the very first time you heard it. And all of a sudden, all the lights went on. And all the dots connected and everything went, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I want that. I want to be saved. I get it. God's going to destroy me in judgment because of my sin and Christ offers me a way to be saved. I want it. And Jesus says the sheep hear his voice. That first moment after we regenerate and we hear the gospel, we hear his voice. Notice in verse 9, he says, the sheep enter by the shepherd. I am the door if anyone enters by me. And we use the analogy of the Old Testament in the tabernacle. And you walk up to the tabernacle and the very first thing you're confronted with is a wall. And right smack in the center of that opening in the gate, there's a great big bronze altar. And you're not going around that altar you must go up and you must bring an animal and you must offer that animal and it must be taken and the blood, the neck cut and the blood splattered and the blood poured on. All that stuff has to happen. You're not getting past that until you go past that altar. And coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't get into the kingdom of heaven unless we come in by Christ. No man enters now you've got a different analogy for the sheepfold. The one in the earlier verses is talking about bringing them out of the fold, bringing them out of the world. Now he's using the fold as the idea of bringing us in. We're part of his family. We, first of all, hear the shepherd's voice. We enter the sheepfold by the shepherd. It speaks of both repentance and faith in God. And he says in verse number four, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. 
That speaks so powerfully of the intimate fellowship that the sheep have with the shepherd. The intimate fellowship that you and I have as brothers and sisters in Christ with the shepherd. I tell you one of the most powerful statements. Take your Bibles, just a little detour. Go to the book of Isaiah. When I very first began to study the Bible, and uh, Uncle Jack was, I don't know I was even studying with him back then, but someone gave me a Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical... Anybody have one of those at home? Yep, there's a great old books. Before computers came around, the Vines Expository, you had to have one of those on your shelf. You had a Strong's Concordance and a Vine side by side. And I remember saying, I want to understand the Bible. I thought I'd pick an easy book like Isaiah. Big mistake. But I started reading in Isaiah. And you know what? This is what I read. Uh, Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3. And Isaiah writes, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Listen, verse number three. I'll let you all find it first. There you go. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, implied, knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. And that's a tear-stained verse, by the way. God says, look, heavens, look, earth. The stupid ox and the dumb donkey, they know their owner and their master, but my people. And you can hear God's heart breaking as he talks about people he has redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. His people, he was given the law and the covenants and the priests and the prophets and all that stuff. He says, my people do not know. I thought, you know what? I bet you the word know is really significant in that verse. And what it means there is know by experience. When you go back to John chapter 10 and he says the sheep know the shepherd's voice. He's talking about that same intimate relationship of the sheep with the shepherd. And brothers and sisters, we are in a relationship with Christ. We know his voice. In verse number four, we follow the shepherd's leading. There is submission and there is obedience wrapped up in those words. You don't follow somebody else unless you submit yourself to go, well, I hope he knows where he's going. You step in behind him and you're hoping and you just follow along. And he says, let's turn left here. And you're not going, well, no, I think we should go right. No, no, let's turn left here. And if you're going to follow him, you submit yourself to him and you obey. When he turns left, you turn left behind him. And Jesus says, if any man would come after me, any man would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow. Come along behind, walk the same way that I walk. And Jesus says, listen, my sheep Know my voice, my sheep, follow the leading. In verse 16, I don't know if you notice, and if you read the passage through, the idea of listening or hearing the shepherd's voice comes up, I think, three times in total. Three times he mentions that his sheep hear his voice, they listen to his voice, they hear his voice. And he says here in verse number 16, turn the page, I have other sheep. No, that's not the verse I'm looking for. The sheep listen. Yeah, it is. Verse number 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
What's he saying? Why does he say hear in one verse and listen in another verse? And I think what he's talking about is not just hearing. I mean, I can hear my voice. And when my mom yelled at me to do something, I heard her voice, but I did not listen to her. Uh, later, when she applied the Board of Education to the Seat of Understanding, I certainly listened and I went and did what I was told the first time. There's a difference, isn't there? But he says they listen to his voice, they hear what he says, and implied and wrapped up in that is they obey what he tells them to do. Why are we going through it? What's, this, what's all this got to do with perseverance of the saints? What I'm trying to get across to all of us is there is a tremendous connection. There is a relationship that is unbreakable between the sheep and the shepherd. How is it that we persevere to the end? Is it dependent upon you and I? The answer is no, it's not. And in some senses it is a bit too. There's an element to that. We'll get to that in a bit. We are, it is not dependent on us. And I want to show you why. The perseverance of the saints depends on a number of things. And we can look at them like this. Number one, it's God's unchanging love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and so on. Take your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 and verses 6 to 11. Our perseverance depends on God's love. And we're going to see why as we get through this list. Romans 5, beginning at verse 6, the Bible says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But... I love this. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The perseverance of the saints depends on God's unchanging love. He does not stop loving the saints. Secondly, it depends on God's irrevocable gifts and callings. Remember we said back there that he calls the sheep. In Romans chapter 8, he says... Uh, those whom he predestined, he also called. Well, we, the Bible tells us in black and white that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Take your Bible. Flip over a couple of pages to Romans 11. Romans 11 and verse 29. Very simple, very short verse. Read verse 28 just to go with it. And he says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Explanation, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, or some versions will use the phrase, without repentance. What does that mean? It means that once God issues a saving call to us, he does not take that call away. He doesn't back it up and say, Wes, oh, never mind, push away. No, he says Wes, and he calls him to follow. And it's, he's not going to back up, not going to take it away. The perseverance of the saints depends upon God's love and God's irrevocable, unrepentable call. It's also dependent upon God's power to keep us. Take your Bibles again, First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. 
1 Peter 1 and verses 3 to 5. And again, it's, it's very strongly in God's regenerating love and God's keeping us. Verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How is the perseverance of the saints? What does it depend on? It depends on God who made a promise, who made us alive, gave us a hope and said, I'm going to keep you and preserve you all through this Christian walk. At the end of your days, you're going to inherit that thing that I promised you. You're going to know what it is to have eternal life and know freedom from the power and the presence and sin in all its forms. God's omnipotent power to keep us is what the perseverance of the saints depends on. God's unchanging decree of election. We saw that in Romans 8 and verse 30. It's also got to do with God's abiding, sealing presence of the Spirit of God within us. I want to take Bibles again and go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read verses 13 and 14. Paul writes and he says, In him, it's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, everybody here knows what it's like to buy a house, right? You, you put an offer down and the day comes and you make a deposit and you take that deposit and the, the purchaser or the seller takes your deposit and keeps it. And one day when the, all the lawyers do all their thing and everything's done and it's the day of closure, the bank gives the person a check for the full amount and the deposit is then topped up with a full amount and the purchase is complete one person gets a house and one person gets the money, right? So that deposit is a seal. It's a guarantee that in a day to come, whether it's three weeks or three years, the full amount of the purchase will be handed over and the transaction is complete. Look what he says here. He says, in Christ you believed and in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance, if the Spirit of God fills us, it's a deposit in us to say, listen, what you're experiencing now with the infilling presence of the Holy Spirit working in you to change you and make you like Christ, in a day to come, the work is going to be finished. We will be like Christ, set free completely from sin in a glorified body, and we'll be present face to face with Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, all those years will be finished and done. But the presence of the Spirit of God in us is a deposit and a guarantee towards what's coming. Notice something else here. 
He says, you were sealed. Now, don't laugh at my Greek, okay? When I was learning Greek, there's a word here for this one, and it's it's something like forgizomai, and it, don't laugh. And what it means is, it's this word sealed. And I, what is it? Okay, see, I can't know I couldn't say it. It's for a gizma, okay? So, and I was trying in my, you know, dumb Canadian Aussie way to try and figure out a way to memorize this word for our Greek vocab test at the end of the week. And I'm thinking, how am I going to put frigids, whatever, and seal together? And I suddenly realized, you know what you do with a fridge? When you close a fridge door, it seals shut. And I went, aha, that's how I remember it. But that's not what the seal means here. It doesn't just mean seal shut, although there is an element of that idea in it. It's the idea that we are burned with an impression, like a, st- a seal that an engineer or an architect makes on a set of drawings. It impresses an image into the paper. It burns like a cow being branded by the old cattlemen to, so that they would know who belongs to who, which cow belongs to them. That seal is the same idea. But it also has the idea that we are fastened in, right? We're sealed in Christ. So he is both the sealer, he seals us to belonging to Christ, and he is the branding mark that everybody else can see that we belong to Christ because the Spirit of God has impressed his presence and his power and influence on our lives. Not only that, he's a deposit towards what we one day will be. Isn't that great? You know why we can never lose our salvation? If we are truly saved, think about this. In order for us to lose our salvation, you know what has to happen? God must, number one, unlove you. His love must stop for you. Nowhere in the Bible does that ever come up. God must be unfaithful to his word. He promised he who began a good work in you will complete it. So he has to take that verse and go, rip, forget that. I'm not going to complete the work in con, not doing it. He has to undo that. God must repent, regret, and reverse his calling and say, I don't want you, and push away. Never in the Bible does it talk about that. God must withdraw his keeping, preserving power. Think about that. He must step back and say, I'm not going to anymore keep you for that day to come. I'll leave you on your own. God must unknow us. It's impossible. Those whom he foreknew. If we can genuinely be saved and then actually lose that salvation, God has to unknow us. Reject all knowledge of us. God, the only thing that God ever says, I choose to remember no more. What is it? Sin. That's right. God says, I I will not, I choose not to remember your sins. They are forgiven. So in order for us to lose our salvation, God must unknow us. He must withdraw and remove his sealing, abiding Holy Spirit that abides in us. I, I cannot even imagine 
And all of those things just describe a God that the Bible has no countenance, no regard for. So when I hear people, and there's some friends of ours who get caught up in this idea, well, you can lose your salvation. I just want to say, don't you understand how you just slandered God? It isn't that you can lose it. You're basically saying God can let you be pulled out of his hand. And my, my little boys, when they were little, they could take, and they got pretty strong little hands, I discovered. They could pry my fingers open. But none, nobody ever created, nothing could take and pry God's fingers open and pull us out of his grasp and throw us away. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is absolutely secure. The question becomes, are we genuinely saved? Uh, and I, it's, I'm cognizant of the time. It's already 7 o'clock. But I want to just hand this out, or not hand up, I'll just give you very quickly, how can we know that we are truly saved? And this is maybe the bigger issue, the assurance that we have. From John chapter 10, we can ask these questions. Do we listen to the Savior's voice? And do we hear his voice? When we're in prayer, when we open the word of God and we begin to read the word of God and it begins to powerfully speak into our lives, are we hearing what the word of God says? Are we listening? Are we obediently following the shepherd's leading? When he calls us to go, do we go? When he says no, do we stop? We read the word of God and says, don't have any part of this. Do we have a part with it? Are we deliberately disobeying Scripture? Does it bother us? I mean, we all make mistakes, absolutely. We all stuff up. I, I couldn't take, if I told you how many times I stuff up today, I have to take the whole day to tell you that because there's just too many things I have to tell you. And we all do that. But does it grieve our souls when we sin against God? If I watch somebody who claims to be a believer and they can sin ongoing, repetitive, without the slightest trace of grief or repentance, I have to conclude there's no saving grace in that person. Because one who has been made alive cannot carry on sinning without any grief, without any regret. That's what John means when he talks about those, if we've been saved, we don't sin anymore. It doesn't mean we never sin. He means that we don't sin without regret or repentance. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit? He said, listen, he said, if we believe and we're saved, we're sealed with the presence of, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So you ask yourself, how can I know for sure if I'm truly saved that I actually have a salvation that is being kept? If I know I'm going to make all the way, I have to actually be on the walk. How do I know? One question you can ask is, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit at work within me? Because the Spirit of God will produce fruit. Will. Not might. Will. Jesus said, every good tree produces good fruit. Not some. And when he said every tree produces good fruit, he didn't mean 100% of the pieces of fruit that are coming off you are all going to be good. He means like every ordinary fruit tree out there is about 90% good fruit. You're going to get the odd rotten, the odd bitten one, the odd misshapen one. Meaning that in general, 
the good tree produces good fruit. But the, there are obviously exceptions to the rule there. And there are times when we stuff up and we do things that we should not do. And we ought not to do. And it grieves our soul. We go to God and we cry out for forgiveness. And there's a renewal and a restoration of that faith and repentance that ought to mark our whole lives. So how do we know if we're truly saved or not? We ask ourselves, am I listening to the shepherd's voice? Am I obediently following the shepherd's leading? Am I trusting the shepherd? You know the verse, John 3, 16? Of course you do. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, let me rephrase it for you. For whosoever continually believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when you hear, ask somebody about how they know they're saved, if they tell me some testimony from 25 years ago, one of my first questions is going to be, what are you trusting the Lord for today? Because faith is not just a thing that happened back then. We were saved by faith. We are being saved by faith. We live by faith and we will be saved by faith when Christ returns at the end of the age. So faith is an ongoing, continual thing. So the question we want to ask ourselves, are we living by faith today? Not just 25 years ago. Is there evidence of the Spirit of God's work in us? I'd, I'd had some time when I was over in Canada. I started studying a little passage. Take your Bible for one last verse. Uh, 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter. You want to know how you can know if you're truly saved or not? 2 Peter in chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 3 to verse 12. This is rich. It's great stuff. Listen to what he says. Peter's writing and he says, His, speaking of God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All that great truth. And then verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. What's he saying? He's saying your faith doesn't start, it starts by itself, but it doesn't stay by itself. 
And onto your faith, you supplement, you build on, you reinforce your faith with all those things. And he says, if those things are yours and are increasing, in other words, if there's growth there, the little faith tree has grown up, and as it's grown up, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and you start building onto that virtue and goodness and all the rest of those other things. And if they're yours and they are increasing, He's saying that, listen, that's proof that there's genuine life there. You are, be, you are saved and you're growing in your faith. And that's why he said a minute ago or 25 minutes ago, whatever it was now, I said, our perseverance depends entirely upon God. But there is a part that we must play in it. Well, what part is that? The part is we supplement our faith with virtue. The part is we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and we allow him to work in us and we don't we strive to not grieve the spirit. We strive to live in obedience and walk with God day by day. Yes, absolutely. God is preserving us. If we are truly saved, we will finish the race all the way to the end. But there is a part to play for us in it. We're not just sitting here going, well, I'm saved. I can just kind of float around. No, that's not what he means. But brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand. There are very many people out there who have decided, I'm saved. I'm in. I'm baptized. i got a thing to prove it. I can, God will take me. I can go live any way I like. No, you can't. Therein lies the great problem. And I want to look at that next week. We'll come back to it because it's a huge problem. But brothers and sisters, I'm going to finish with this. You don't have to turn to it. I said that was the last passage. So Romans 8. What does he say? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for Saul. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Think of that. He's slams that stamp down on Lydia's life and says she's justified. Some little impecunious lawyer says, I have a charge to raise. No, you don't. God just declared her just. That settles it. In other words, nothing can be brought back. And what the, the, the point he's driving home as he's writing those words is that we are in Christ. We are absolutely secure. In one sense, he's looking back and he's reflecting on the first verse there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? If we have experienced God's love, nothing can pry us out of his hand. That's the same idea. What an amazing Savior we have. What an amazing salvation we have. What a great God we have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Loving Father, I just want to stand back in awe of who you are and what you have done. And Father, when we realize that the salvation is truly of the Lord, the Lord is my salvation. My debt is paid. The victory is won. 
Father, to know that You are preserving us and keeping us. You have declared across our lives just, righteous in My sight. No one dares raise a charge against us. For You have settled the matter. And Father, when we think about Your love, the love of God, the Drew Salvation's plan, the love and the grace of God that brought it down to man, the love of God that was willing that Christ should die even while we were still sinners. It just staggers our minds. And Father, we can't cope with such thoughts. We can't really even cope with such truths. All we can do is stand back and say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All we can do is stand back and say, we love the Lord Jesus and we love you, Father, for what you have done. We who deserved every inch of the full weight of your wrath, we who deserved every minute of eternity in a hellfire for our sin, and you in love and grace have saved us and rescued us. You've washed us. Father, to think that you have sealed us with your Spirit, branded into the side of us, the mark that says we belong to Christ. And Father, to think that the callings, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. You will never pull them back. They are ours forever. And Father, we look forward with great anticipation, with great joy, with longing. Father, we look forward to the day when the work in us will be finished and we will see Jesus. We will see the one who died for us. We will look into his face. And Father, we will spend eternity rejoicing and glorifying him and marveling at his person. Never for a moment of eternity will it become boring or old. Father, we pray that you would do your work in us this day. Father, have your will in each of our lives. Make us like Jesus. Finish the work that you started, Father. You promised you would. Father, we ask you for your blessing in our church. We thank you again, O oh God, for a good day together in worship and fellowship. Father, we pray that you would take these verses and these scriptures and these thoughts about you and bless them. Father, may the meditations of our heart and the words of our lips be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Father, we thank you again for this time and and for each other. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you are working to make us into a family, to bind us together with cords of love. Father, we pray for your help. We ask you, Lord, for your blessing on the week that lies ahead. Lord, there are challenges that we have no idea. We can't even see them coming, Lord, but you know. So, Father, give us the strength we need in the moment we need it. Father, give us the reassurance Give us the drive to cry out to you in prayer the moment we become aware of our need. Lord, we ask you for all these things and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.